Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then another, he asked another, And how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they ridiculed him. So he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning, friends. My name is Christian Kuhn. I'm one of the lead pastors of Urban Village. <clears throat> I'm usually at the River North site. Uh, it's been great these last three months to come to Wicker Park on a monthly basis <clears throat> as part of the uh, transition that we are going through with uh, Trey Hall, who will be up here in a few moments, uh, as a transition to England and our own um, time of exploring that. So thank you for letting me be a part of this. I preached my very first sermon when I was in seventh grade. Uh, I had a wonderful tan polyester three-piece suit. And there's a picture of me with my head over the pulpit. Uh, and at that age, I was a rabid sports fan, so I think 100% of my illustrations had to do with sports. Uh, over the years, I realized not everyone is a sports fan, so I've tried really hard not to use them that often. But today, I have two of them, so I apologize for that. For those, but I think even non-sports fans may get a kick out of these. So I'm particularly a baseball fan. And uh, in the 1970s especially, there were two brothers who were pitchers, Joe and Phil Negro. And uh, they were sometimes uh, accused of cheating or of doing certain things to the ball in order to make the ball move in certain ways. So uh, sometimes pitchers have been known to put like Vaseline on the bill of their cap. So they're staying on the mound, they kind of grab it from their cap and put it on the ball to make the ball do things that really a ball shouldn't be doing. Uh, or sometimes pitchers have been known to put sandpaper in their baseball glove. And so they'll take the ball and kind of scrub it up a little bit 
again, to make the ball move and do things that a ball is not supposed to do. So one particular game, Joe Negro, who I just mentioned, uh, who had been accused or thought it was cheating before, uh, was called out. So the other team said to the umps, we think he's got something in his pockets. So we've got a very brief video here to show. So pay close attention to what falls out of his pockets when they search him. That's what pitcher Joe Necro almost had to endure when he was suspected of scuffing up the baseball with a foreign object. Unfortunately, Necro emptied one pocket too many and discovered, once again, that an umpire's eye doesn't miss a thing. What did they find in his pocket? I don't know. It was an emery board that led to Necro's scuffle with the law. Uh, <laughs> so... I love especially when he does it, and then they find the emery board on the ground, and Joe Necro's like, what's that? How did that get there? So people who follow baseball, the, the good uh, law, rule-following baseball players and members of the opposing team will see this, and they'll say, "That's a, he's cheating. That's unfair. He should not be doing that. But then there are others, maybe members of Joe Necro's team or fans of his team, who will say, hey, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, right? Like, you've got to cut corners, do absolutely everything you can in order to win the game. So I thought about this as I read this parable this week, and I have to believe that this manager who's highlighted in this parable probably may have been a fan of Joe Necro and doing anything necessary in order to get what he wants. So we have this parable, this very interesting parable, as I was reading different scholars this week, almost every one of them said something like this. None of the parables has baffled interpreters quite like the story of the dishonest steward. People will read this story and they'll kind of look at it and question it and wonder about it and they'll do their best to come up with different interpretations of it. Uh, and I think sometimes when that happens with so many different people have different perspectives on what Jesus meant by telling this parable, or what the, this means, uh, I think that gives us even more of a chance to really begin to play with the text and think to ourselves, well, what exactly could Jesus mean here at this story? So let's take another look at it. So again, we have this manager who is really just cheating the owner of this land, and he's found out. So in order to cover his own behind, he goes to the people who owes not him money, but who owes the owner money, and says, what do you got? How much can you afford? Let's just call it even, right? So as you're reading perhaps this parable, or maybe as people were hearing this parable as Jesus was telling it, we may assume we knew where this was going, right? Here's this manager, this dishonest manager, and he's screwing over the owner of the land, and the owner finds out, and he's doing these things again in order to cover his own behind, and we're waiting for that time when the owner is going to just nail him to the wall. And then we find out that the owner is, admires him for this, which we can't quite understand. And then later on, Jesus says this. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. And we read this and we're like, what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying we should cheat other people? What exactly could he want to, to mean by saying this? Well, in reflecting on it a little bit, I'm reminded that I think Jesus was a big admirer of people who had chutzpah, right? People who were audacious. Jesus loved to hang out with people who others didn't want to hang out, like rule breakers. 
people who didn't exactly follow the law. And Jesus loved to hang out with them, and I think admired them in some ways. And I was reading another translation, particularly of verse, uh, the second part of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9, that I think encapsulates this for me. This is from the message. Some of you may know this is a very modern translation of the scriptures. And here is the translation of the second part of verse 8 in the beginning of verse 9. It says this. Jesus says, Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right. So Jesus again says, they're people, streetwise people, as it's translated here, constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. So these are savvy people, right? And Jesus says, I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right. I think of the text Jesus tells elsewhere when he's talking to his followers, and he says, you must be innocent as doves and wise as serpents. Jesus, I think perhaps until, maybe, telling this story is saying to us, let's take a look at how this guy is going about it. Not exactly why he's doing it. I mean, I think as we talk about this manager is really looking out for himself. So Jesus is saying, let's take a look at how he's doing this for what is right. I think out of this parable, and out of reading this whole passage, there were three questions that came to mind for me, and I hope that they can be useful for you. I've been really reflecting on them myself this week. Three questions that come up from this story or from this passage. And the first question is this. Ask yourself the question, on this day, who will I serve? Or, for you English majors, on this day, whom will I serve? Right? Or, on this day, what will I serve? I think this is an excellent question for us to ask as we begin our day in the shower, brushing your teeth, eating breakfast. Who today will I serve? In the case of the parable, the manager was really probably serving himself, right? For us, I hope that we are answering, I'm trying my best to want to serve God. On this day, I want to serve God. So the next question is, how are we doing that? Does our behavior convey that we want to serve God? Here's where the second sports metaphor comes, then I'm done. <laughs> so I don't know if there are any NASCAR fans uh, in our midst here today, but uh, I'm, I'm not a huge NASCAR fan, but I'm always interested in seeing all of the logos and ads on the suits that they wear and on the cars. I think we have a picture, there we go, Tony Stewart. So we can tell here, who do you think might be the main sponsor of Tony Stewart's? <laughs> Office Depot, I think, has probably put up a fair amount of money, right? So that Tony Stewart wears that on his suit and on his car as well. Did a little research this week. So let's say, for example, you've got some money lying around and you think, I want to sponsor our driver in NASCAR. And so I want my logo to be on the front of the car. I want to be able to use the driver's likeness in any way I can. That will only cost you about $500,000 per race. All right? So if you have that cash lying around, want to sponsor that, go for it. Uh, listen to what Violet said earlier, though, too, as well, as you're doing that. 
So let's say you don't have that much money lying around. Let's say you only have one and a half million dollars lying around. Well, you can be an associate sponsor for one of these drivers as well. You can put your logo on the fender, rear window, uh, on the little, what they call the B pillar, which is next to the driver's shoulder, all that. You could sponsor a race for anywhere from $500,000 to $2 million as well. So all of these ways that you can use your money, and it tells the world, whoever's driving that car, essentially, this person owns this car, and maybe even as that owns the driver. So my question to you is, let's pretend you have on some kind of NASCAR suit. Who sponsors you? What would be the logo that would be emblazoned first and foremost? on what you are wearing or on your car. It's another way of asking the question again. Who do you serve? What do you serve? A question for all of us to ask. And as we ask that question, then that takes us into the second question that hopefully we have answered the question, at least on our better days. I'm doing my best that I want to. I desire to serve God. And if we answer that, then we say, all right, what will you use in order to serve God? What will you use? For the manager, we see here in the text, in this parable, he has a dilemma. He's been found out. He might be get thrown out on, uh, on his own. He might not know exactly, he doesn't want to beg. And so he's wondering to himself, How do, what do I do now? And so he's asking, I think, himself the question, well, what do I have? And he says, I have savviness. I have wits. I am clever. And so that's then when he goes into this process of going to these people who owe the owner money, taking some of, the, uh, some of it off in order to pocket it and, tr and bring it back to the owner as well. Again, what the message transition says, this is a man who is in constant alert, looking for angles, surviving on his wits. That's what he had. So then the question is, what do you have? What will you use? in order to answer that first question, that I want to serve God. Today, I want to serve God, so what do I have? And then we begin to answer that question. We have, I have time, I have 24 hours. What will I use? How will I use that? I have gifts and graces. I can do certain things. I'm created in a certain way. God has given me these things. I can use that to serve God. Certainly, this is the last sermon of this sermon series when we're talking about what's in Jesus' wallet. We do have some resources. Some of us may be in Violet's case, talking about your student, you're not making a lot of money, you have a lot of debt. But still, Violet is asking the question, I do have some resources. How will I use that? I have this, and so what will I use, and how will I use it? So there's a great uh, story, or a great um, story and group that I was reading about and know about, uh, I grew up about 40 miles west of Dubuque, Iowa, right there in the Mississippi River. And there is a group of nuns who live there as part of what's called Our Lady of the Mississippi Abbey, which is a, a monastic community of Trappistine nuns. And they moved to Dubuque in 1965 from Massachusetts. And as they made the move, they knew that we wanted to be a group and order that prayed constantly, that served and worked, but then they realized that just praying is not going to pay our bills. And so they asked that same question. We want to serve God. We answered that first question, 
who are you serving? And they answer, we are serving God. And so then what do you have? And then they had to look around. Well, what do we have? What can we use in order to serve God? And they realized in the process, that they said, well, we have a recipe. We have a recipe on how to make candy, how to make caramels. They had this recipe from Massachusetts, and they came when they moved to Dubuque, and they realized we can use this recipe in order to support what we believe God is calling us to do. And so, for the last 50 years, they make the best caramels. If you go on monasterycandy.com, you can order these amazing candies. And this is what they have used. Because they say, what do we have to serve? If we answer that first question, how do we serve? Who do we serve? And then then answer the question, what do we have around us? And I think it's the same question for us to answer as well. What do you have? Your time, your gifts, your finances as well as we're asking you to think about how you will support Urban Village in 2016. So then the final question, I've already kind of asked, asked it a little bit, is how will you use it? Who will you serve? What do you have to serve? And then the question is how will you use it? And we saw in the story or in the parable that the manager knew I've got wit, I've got cleverness, and that's when he goes and to the people who owe the owner money in order to try to cover his own behind. So this past week, in the past couple of weeks, we've been thinking a lot, hearing a lot, praying a lot about Syrian refugees. And as we do so, perhaps you have thought about uh, other instances of immigrants and refugees who have been trying to come to this country. And I thought about this too in thinking about the story of the manager. And I thought especially of what was called the sanctuary movement that happened mainly in the 1980s. So in the 1980s, especially in Central America, millions of people, of of natives of Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua were fleeing their countries because of the political upheaval, because of the oppression, because they were literally being killed. And they're fleeing first to Mexico and then trying to make it their way to the United States. At the time, though, our government was saying these are economic migrants, and they would not give them asylum. So there was, I was reading this week about a man named Jim Corbett, who was a Quaker, lived in Tucson, Arizona. And in 1981, he and a friend were driving, they saw a hitchhiker, and it turned out to be a, a, a refugee from El Salvador. But they came across a border guard, and the border guard arrested this hitchhiker and sent him back to El Salvador, and began Jim began to ask himself the question, how is it that a government would send someone back to their certain death? Why, how could we be doing that? So as a man of faith, he started to think himself, like, how can I respond in this situation? I don't know if he exactly said some of the things that the message transitions say, I need to look for angles, I need to survive by my wits in order to do what is right. But he started that process. At first, he started to dress up as a Catholic priest And he called himself Padre Jaime. And he crossed the border back into Mexico in order to meet with some of these refugees in prison and to take them food and other supplies, helping them explain their legal rights in the United States. At first, he tried to work within the system, help them to apply for asylum. And he knew that when they would be released, that they could be in the custody of local ministers while their appeals were being held. But after a while, the government, our American government, started to arrest asylum seekers and return them to jail in Mexico. So again, he started to think to himself, 
How can we look for angles, perhaps? How can we survive by our wits? How do we do what is right? And so they started really a contemporary underground railroad in order to help these refugees against US law in order to escape what the turmoil that they were finding in their own country. This is a really challenging thing to think about. So when we think about how do we serve God, and we look at this manager who is using his guile and his wits, and if we believe that maybe Jesus kind of admired that, but to do what is right, and we see here that these people were doing it, what was against what was uh, US government policy, it was against the law, but they felt like what is right is to not send these individuals back to their certain death. And so they committed civil disobedience. Now I understand this is a very slippery slope. Someone approached me after the first service and gently challenged me a bit. And there are a lot of what ifs. And we also talk about at times, like if we commit civil disobedience, if it agrees with what we agree with, we're like, yeah. But if it's what somebody who disagrees with political, politically, then we say, arrest them. They're breaking the law. So I totally get this is a slippery slope to talk about and reflect on. And so when we do so, some of the folks at Urban Village participated in Moral Monday a couple weeks ago, blocked entrances. Some of them were taken to jail, committed these acts of civil disobedience. A year ago, some of us went out on the streets when we, uh, part of the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, in a sense, kind of committing civil disobedience. Because it felt like this is what we're using our creativity and our guile in order to do, make a statement of what is right. At Urban Village, you may not know this, but in a sense, we kind of break some church laws. Our denomination, the United Methodist Church, says that pastors cannot do same-gender weddings, and we have made a decision that we will continue to do them, because this is, you can clap, that's all right. <laughs> Unless you're a spy. <laughs> and then I disavow what I just said. Because, but we prayed about this. This wasn't something that we said, well, this is a popular thing to do. Let's, you know, screw them. We're going to do this. But after real prayer, right, and using our creativity and our wits and trying to figure out how can we do what we feel like we are called to do, to do what is right. And again, I realize that what is right is being defined differently by different people. But after deep prayer and a sense of who we believe we are called to be as Christ followers, this is the decision we've made and using perhaps some of the tactics, or at least some of the behavior of this dishonest manager. Not what he was serving himself, but instead to serve God. So the question is for all of us, then, to reflect on these three questions. Maybe just one of them is one that you really need to pray about this week. It's hard to take on all of them. But to ask yourself the question this week. Every day you wake up, who will I serve? Who will I serve? Or maybe the question for you to really think about is, what do I have around me? What do I have so that I can serve God? And then to ask yourself the question, how will I do it? Will I use my imagination and my creativity? I sometimes wonder if Jesus got mad at the Pharisees, not just because of what the rule or strict fundamentalism, but also because you aren't creative, right? You aren't imaginative. And so how can we do that ourselves? To use our imagination, our guile, our creativity in order to do what is right. And answering all three of these questions, we must do so prayerfully. 
talking, I mean, conversation with community and with others. We're not just going off on our own. Maybe talk to somebody who disagrees with us as well to get a sense of like, am I doing, am, am I following Christ in the right way? And really own that in deep within ourselves. I think if we take these three questions and as best we can offer ourselves to God, that God honors that. And that we can truly serve God and say that today is the day that I will serve God and tomorrow I will do the same because I know that God is there for me as well. Let's pray. Holy, loving, and gracious God, we give you thanks for being there for us, for deeply holding us, for loving us, for being there so that we can pray to you when we have difficult decisions and when we stray from following you or serving you or we don't do it in a way perhaps that honors you, you continue to call us back, and we thank you for that. We pray that you would give us the strength to use what we have, to use what we have to serve you, and to do so creatively so that others might take a second look and know, even in this world that is filled with violence at times, and we wonder, how can love win out? That they will know, because of the way we serve you, that indeed it will. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.